Welcome to this season podcast recorded on the 2nd of November here in Kuala Lumpur. I'm Hans Genberg, the Executive Director of the Center, and I'm delighted to be joined by Grant Spencer, the former Governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, in this podcast. Welcome, Grant. Thanks, Hans. Uh, Grant, you had a long and distinguished career as a central banker, and I thought uh, we could take the opportunity of your presence at the center as a visiting scholar to have a conversation about the evolution of central banking in New Zealand, but also globally. So let me start by asking you first to share with you, with us, uh, a little of, on your background, how you ended up in central banking, and what made you decide to have a career in central banking. <clears throat> well, thanks, Hans, uh, for uh, having me at the CSEN Centre. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, in terms of um, getting into central banking, I had a background or studied in economics and mathematics, and then econometrics at London School of Economics. So going back to New Zealand, I was interested in uh, model building. So the central bank in those days was the place to be for model building. So this is when econometric model building was really <coughs> getting underway. And so that my, my early days in central banking were in research and um, econometric uh, model building and forecasting. I see. Uh, so you mentioned you were at the London School of Economics, and I, I uh, recall that that uh, Phillips, the Phillips curve originator, I think developed a machine uh, for econometric model building, an engineering machine uh, at the LSE, but it now uh, resides at the Reserve Bank, is it? That's right. <clears throat> the Philip, Philip Bill Phillips built um, a machine called Moniac, which was a water-based sort of analog computer of um, sort of income expenditure model of the economy. <clears throat> and that was um, he he built it as a teaching tool. <clears throat> and I remember actually at LSE uh, there was a <clears throat> a version of this down in the in the uh, lobby of the pub of the bar down underneath in the ground floor, but it wasn't a working model. Um, but um, more recently, uh, Alan Bollard in particular was instrumental in getting uh, a working version of Moniac going in the Reserve Bank of New Zealand uh, Museum. And so that's, a, that's um, the sort of central feature for vis visitors. They wonder what the heck this is, and <laughs> we give them demonstrations and uh, push the buttons and watch the water go around the pipes. And so it's, it's quite a fascinating thing. But you don't use it as a for main forecasting tool? Of the <clears throat> no, we've, we've got a bit more accurate uh, instruments uh, since then, yes. Very good. Um, what was... Uh, when did you actually first start at the RBNZ, and, and what was it like then, uh, and how has it changed over the years until uh, recently? <clears throat> well, it was um, in those days, that was uh, late 70s, and um, central banking was still pretty sort of clubby sort of place, a uh, paternalistic culture. 
where the young people were sort of looked after and sort of patted on the head. Um, but you know you had to you had to follow the rules. Um, there were elements that were so the area where I was working, which was the economic department, had a head with Roderick Dean, and he was a very dynamic and um, <clears throat> had a, a lot of energy and motivated to improve uh, economic research and economic policy and monetary policy. And uh, he, he was a big, he was a, my uh, mentor in the early days. And he was instrumental really in changing the culture, I'd say, of Reserve Bank. But that paternalistic culture is an example. Um, I first had a, uh, you know, you had a, a mortgage, a subsidised staff mortgage. But the, the senior management decided what house you could buy and what you couldn't buy. <laughs> so the first house I wanted to buy with my wife one one of these senior managers went and had a look at it and said he didn't like it and uh, I should go and look for something else. So th this is the sort of thing you had to you had to deal with. But it was um, it was an enjoyable um, early career, I must say. Since then, the bank has become a uh, much more open, a more modern organisation. Uh, it's a very collegial and respectful organisation. I mean, there's a competition of ideas, but it's not a cutthroat organisation, um, as you might find uh, in some commercial entities. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good place to work, which is why I, I wound up going back to the Reserve Bank about three times. So I left to go and work at the IMF for a number of years. I also worked at ANZ Bank, which is a commercial bank in Australasia for about 10 years and then and both times came back to the Reserve Bank. So Reserve Bank had this uh, open culture that encouraged uh, rotation and tra training of staff and then bring people back in. So, you know, it's, it's been a very good organisation to work for. Very good. Um, now, talking about the Reserve Bank, uh, it uh, is uh, always mentioned in the context of inflation targeting as the first central bank to adopt that strategy for monetary policy. And it would be interesting to know what the background was to the decision to, to move to inflation targeting and also how you decided how to implement that strategy. Because you were the first. You didn't have anybody to uh, ex anybody's experience to uh, uh, adopt, and so you had to invent the strategy on your own. So how how did that come about? Well, it was it was very much in the context of the broader financial sector reforms and economic reforms of the uh, mid to late eighties in New Zealand where um, we had, there was a Labour government under David Longy and a finance minister called Roger Douglas and this broad reform was called Rogernomics and uh, it was broad-based deregulation, financial deregulation and public sector reform. In the public sector reform, Roger Douglas was very much in favour of 
setting up institutions, public sector institutions, public entities that um, had a degree of autonomy with clear objectives and, and, and basically were accountable for achieving those objectives and told to go and get on with the job. Um, rather than decisions coming back up to ministers. Um, so the inflation targeting framework was very, was very much consistent with that public sector reform model. Um, so we had a clear objective of price stability. You know, he, so he was in favour of having a single objective. You could have secondary objectives, but clear single objectives, independent uh, governor and bank to you know make decisions to to achieve its target and then hold it accountable. So in the in the original structure at least, you know the governor could have been sacked if he hadn't achieved um, his objective over a certain period. So you know that 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 was the essential basis of the inflation targeting framework. Now, I guess we could have, you know, prior to that there had been a lot of intermediate targeting, targeting of money aggregates, credit aggregates, looking at uh, lists of indicators, but those sort of intermediate targets had not been particularly successful. And there was always the um, Goodhart's law thing, you know, that if you start chasing something and then it behaves differently as soon as you start chasing it. And so, you know, the view was in setting that objective under this new framework, we, the sensible thing to do was just set inflation itself as the objective and then find ways of achieving it. And uh, in terms of finding ways to achieve it, did you uh, immediately hit upon saying we, we should control a short-term interest rate and through that and, and uh, communication affecting expectations we will achieve the target or did you have to uh, do some trial and error with, with various possible instruments? Yeah, there was, there was uh, something of an evolution in the approach. I must I would add though, you know, we, we recognized that a floating exchange rate was very important to be able to achieve uh, our objectives and to have some degree of um, monetary independence. And so we had floated, um, you know, as part of the Rogernomics reforms in 1985. So that had helped to set the scene. But in, ter in terms of um, monetary policy instruments, we actually started with, with money-based type instruments and sort of targeting quantities of settlement cash and and that's how we originally used to apply leverage to short-term interest rates which would then you know flow through the transmission mechanism but as a result of controlling uh, settlement cash rather than short-term rates we used to have quite there used to be quite a lot of short-term interest rate volatility in that early period and it wasn't until about when was it it was something like mid 90s that we shifted to the more conventional and now standard approach of controlling uh, short-term interest rates so we set an official cash rate 
and then use money market operations to keep actual money market rates close to the official cash rate. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, there has been some evolution, um, and certainly the transmission channels have varied through time, where different factors have been uh, more and less important through time, where the exchange rate has been more and less of an influence through time, the housing market, labour market, it's, it's always an evolving picture. Mm. I once had a conversation with the Swedish uh, central bank governor at the time when they introduced inflation targeting and he mentioned that uh, having this objective of controlling inflation changed the made it possible to organize the work of the central bank in a much more specific way namely that each department knew what input they were supposed to deliver and how that fit into the general picture of what the final outcome would be, namely an inflation forecast, uh, for example. Is that something that resonates with uh, the way maybe the Reserve Bank changed its internal workings? Well, I would say it was certainly uh, a unifying theme. You know, having a single clear objective is, is a wonderful uh, mechanism for <clears throat> solidarity, unified approach within an organisation because everyone sort of knows what monetary policy is trying to achieve. Um, and yeah, that to, to some extent helps the, the organisation. But like our forecasting, for example, is not, was never just about forecasting inflation. So, you know, we're always interested in the real economy, what's happening, um, and you can't divorce it. And so we've always taken care not to be too sort of single-minded just on the inflation objective, even though that's a legislative objective, that's the main target. Um, a lot of the time in our monetary policy process and forecasting rounds is, is talking about different parts of the economy which don't always have a very close, direct uh, bearing on, on the ultimate goal. I see. Now, uh, so the RBNZ was the first to introduce inflation targeting, but recently, from what I understand, uh, the, uh, the Reserve Bank has been giving a modified objective, more like the dual mandate of the Fed, namely to include some mention of uh, employment in the, in the mandate. Mm. Do you see that as having a big influence on how the uh, RBN said will conduct policy going forward? Um, yes, so it, it, it is changing. The legislation hasn't changed yet, but it's effectively been introduced by the government, new government that came in late last year, late 2017. And so, yeah, it's like the U.S. dual mandate, price stability and maximum sustainable employment, um, or words to that effect. Um, right now, um, I, I think that will have very little impact on actual policy because unemployment is relatively low and um, it's, it's around a sort of natural level or Nairu no one's ever quite sure about uh, 
what the Nauru or National Rate of Unemployment is, and um, <clears throat> that that's why it's difficult. It's not as easy like inflation where you can just set an inflation target. It's got to be the target sort of around words and views rather than a sort of a scientifically determined or fixed number. Um, but, given, but given that unemployment is, a, is around the, the natural rate, um, it's not going to have an impact on, on uh, policy right now. But down the track, um, you know, I imagine it could well have a, an influence on policy. Um, and that will depend on the environment, who, who the governor is, you know, what the pressures are. Um, but if, if unemployment is, is a way, particularly away from a target, so to speak, then there'll be a question about how much weight goes on that um, in day-to-day -day policy. And time will tell um, how important a factor that is. But, you know, the key for me would be the need to really keep price medium-term price stability as the, still as the, core objective, which I think effectively what is what the Fed does. That's right. You know, the Fed the Fed has a dual mandate, but it really the price stability objective is still very central in a medium term context. That's right, yeah. Now central banks in uh, many jurisdictions are being asked to do an increasing number of things. Of course, there's the price stability and financial stability after the financial crisis. Uh, that's almost taken as a given that that's something central banks should do. But there is also uh, concern about in society about inequality, about climate change, and some central banks have been asked to take that into account. And, and uh, I believe uh, Mark Carney the, uh, at the Bank of England has given speeches to the effect that uh, uh, climate change might involve financial risks and that has been taken by some to say that central banks need to worry about it. Is, are we not getting to a point where central banks are being asked to do too much? Well, that's definitely a risk. Um, you know, if you start loading more objectives back on the central bank, then you start to return to the situation we had prior to inflation targeting, which was a list of multiple objectives where you can't achieve any of them. Uh, so it's important to keep price stability as the primary objective. Now, it's fine to have secondary objectives, and the normal sort of secondary objectives for monetary policy, uh, yeah, financial stability, employment, or particularly unless if it's not in the dual mandate itself. Um, and in New Zealand, we have sort of interest rate and exchange rate stability also as a secondary objective or a, a have regard to. So have regard to is a fine as long as you keep the primary goal um, front and centre. So, I mean, things like, when you come to things like uh, climate change and distributional issues, then um, you have to be careful. I don't, I don't think they should be coming into monetary policy, even as secondary objectives, because monetary policy 
is too simple, blunt at all. But they may influence, and your comments about Mark Carney may, may be in terms of the uh, regulatory uh, objectives, financial stability, then it is true that um, climate change presents certain risks to the financial system that need to be recognised and uh, a prudential authority should be aware of those risks and that should be part of its analysis um, and be uh, encouraging financial institutions to make sure they allow for some of these risks like stranded asset risks etc in their risk analysis. So I think from a regulatory point of view, um, climate change is definitely relevant, but in a broad sense, distributional uh, policies that affect sort of income distribution, I think really uh, the arena of elected representatives rather than uh, monetary policy or financial regulation. Okay. Uh... Turning to, to uh, financial stability and financial regulation, I believe that, that the Arban has said you have been closely involved with, with those issues. And uh, I would be interested in your views how increased digitalization and complexity of the financial system might influence financial stability. And but more generally, what do you think are the main challenges facing financial regulators in New Zealand and also more broadly in the, in the region and, and globally? <clears throat> well, um, I think, yeah, digitization is um, so having the, the impact of uh, globalized data, you know, where data is just, the, the flow of data is just massive and the sharing of data is greater, which increases risk uh, of Data corruption, and this sort of so the cyber security generally, I think, is a major threat that regulators still don't really have a good handle on. This the generally one step behind, you know, what what institutions themselves are doing. If you talk to any commercial banker and say, you know, what keeps them awake at night, it's usually around cyber security. That's the big thing they worry about. They're going to wake up in the morning and find that their core banking system is frozen or been attacked. <laughs> you know, something dreadful. And that type of incident can have systemic effects, potentially, if a big bank is, is frozen in that way or impaired in that way. So I think... Um, Regulators are going to really, that, that's a key challenge in this new world is to um, figure out how to handle the, the role of the regulator in cybersecurity. Because the regulator doesn't know everything and it's such a fast moving world that the regulator generally is behind the play, not at, not at the leading edge. So you have to find a sensible way of playing a role in that space. I think related to that is the, um, you know, the whole changing shape of um, banking and payments with technology firms potentially coming in, <clears throat> and uh, in China in particular, you've got <clears throat> Alibaba and Tencent etc. that are 
big in payments and also doing banking, actual pure banking um, activities. And I think most bankers will expect that that's going to be an ongoing trend. So you're going to have more of this um, morphing of banking and um, the technology industry. <clears throat> um, and so a regulator has to figure out, well, you know, do you keep a, a, a sort of an institution entity-based regulatory system or a sort of a function-based um, approach? And how are, the reg how are the regulators going to handle technology companies as they become more important right. in, in financial <clears throat> business? And um, so that's... that's um, a further challenge uh, that um, regulators are, are grappling with. <clears throat> um, I think an important aspect of that, I think, is to try and separate payments from banking. You'll never separate the two because they're sort of inherently linked, but you have to try and insulate the, the sort of major institutions and the core banking activities, balance sheet risk, from payment, the payments, and to a large extent that is happening now with the way the payments systems are set up. But um, <clears throat> I think there's still some way to go in the sense that if you have damage to a financial market infrastructure or a payment system, you know, there's this risk that it feeds through, gets into the, and brings a bank down, which then bring, brings other institutions down. Um, the, thir the third thing I'd mention as a challenge is just is, is maybe not so much regulatory but the current situation where what's happening in China and the US um, regarding uh, increased protectionism and a sort of a move back, you might say a reversal of globalisation mm. uh, with increasing nationalistic uh, type economic policies and financial policies. The, cha the challenges for countries that are not that are like ordinary small medium-sized countries is yeah what do you do how, how do you optimize in that type of envi environment we've been used to just this continuing trend of globalization now things it's a different world or mm -hmm. could be a very different world then you know what's the best approach for a small medium-sized country do you, you know, play the neutral? Do you keep an op open, <coughs> open borders, open capital account, or do you follow the lead of <laughs> the US, or do you take sides? Or what do you do? So right. I think that, that those are interesting questions. That's right. Now, um, continuing on the on the financial stability uh, area, you. Um, uh, working here, uh, you're a, vis uh, sort of a visiting scholar, as we mentioned earlier, and I believe you're working on issues related to financial stability, in particular in, in New Zealand. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about what uh, what project you're working on, and uh, so so our our listeners can look forward to reading your uh, your wise words sometime in the future. Yes, well. Uh, in New Zealand, since 2013, we've had um, 
macroprudential policy in the form of LTV ratios. And uh, a couple of months ago, I gave a presentation at a meeting here in, at CSEN on the New Zealand experience with LTVs. So um, <clears throat> Hans had kindly invited me to write this up for uh, the uh, one of the CSEN publications. So effectively, that's what I'm doing is 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 trying to summarise the. New Zealand experience and the, and the main lessons for other countries, other members of uh, members of CSEN, for example, um, and um, so yes, I'll be uh, looking forward to getting that out in, in, in your publications. Very good. We're looking forward to to reading it. I I was uh, actually present at that uh, meeting you mentioned, and it uh, was a really interesting presentation with the particular twists of, of the case of New Zealand being, I think, important for other jurisdictions as well. So uh, we're coming to a uh, close, but uh, let me uh, finish with a, what I call an express segment of the postcards. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, in 30 seconds for each one of the following uh, terms, could you give me your immediate thoughts? The first one is central bank independence. I think central bank independence is very important for the success of monetary policy. It's, it's hard won and it's easily lost. And so um, it's something that central bankers need to protect. Policy normalization. Well, the policy normalization, when you say that, I think, okay, the, the US is normalizing policy right now, and not too many other countries, in fact, maybe Canada, but essentially the US are out on their own. And so I think there's potential issues brewing there as the gap, interest rate gap widens between with the US normalising but Japan and Europe uh, staying pretty much with zero interest rates. So I think that could present issues down the track. How about financial stability? Well, uh, financial stability is a bit like Russ never sleeps. It's, uh, there's always problems lurking in the financial system. And, you know, I think the financial system, uh, the sort of fractional reserve banking, is inherently uh, unstable. So credit and finance has a lot of benefits and you know, supports growth and efficient uh, markets, but it's an inherently unstable system. So if you're a financial regulator, You've always got to be on the lookout for the uh, the next shock. <laughs> Trade wars. Trade wars. Um, it's unfortunate what's happening now in terms of um, the emergence of protectionism, because I think it's potentially really a damaging, adverse uh, supply shock to the global economy. And hopefully that won't happen, and that uh, some of this posturing will, you know, they'll back off. But, you know, there's a dangerous uh, tendency to return to the sort of mercantilist uh, theories of 
of you know the 18th century where you know every country wants to run a surplus and uh, generate gold reserves so that's what they did then right. um, so that's a big risk for the global economy finally uh, can you give us uh, an indication for about an economist or a central banker that you admire well uh, there's a few central bankers uh, come to mind um, Stan Fisher uh, Paul Volcker John Williams I have a lot of respect for current now the head of New York Fed um, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England I think is, is a lateral thinker and always looking at new angles and someone I worked with years ago who I have a, a huge respect for was um, Michel Camdessou, who used to the former head of the IMF. He, he wasn't too popular in this part of the world <laughs> in, during, <laughs> during the Asian crisis. That's right. As uh, some of the policies weren't exactly appropriate, but um, as an economist, as a leader, and I worked with him, um, he, he, uh, he's someone I very much respected. Very good. Thank you very much, Grant. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Hans. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks.